From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. As misleading information circulated in the scientific community around genetic testing, Dr. Jonathan Beckwith became concerned. He saw how people were misusing the data that genetic analysis provided to promote racist ideas. In the late 1960s, Beckwith began to incorporate social justice issues into the genetic courses he taught. Prompted by two students eager to learn more about social justice, Beckwith developed a full semester course around science and social justice that he has taught since 1983. On today's episode, we present the third part of our conversation with Dr. Jonathan Beckwith. He describes how his early activism, his science, and his interest in social justice came together and the legacy of that work. One of the things I did early on probably in teaching is uh, teaching my genetics course was to include a, a session or two on what I would consider social justice issues. In the late 60s, I started doing that. And then in the 1980s, two students who'd taken my course came to me and said they wanted, they thought they should have a, there should be a full semester course that was entirely devoted to science and social justice issues. And I started that with them the first year in, in 1983, and then I've been teaching that course ever since. A lot of it is related to racial issues and, and minorities. It sort of overlaps with ethical issues, like uh, issues that can arise around genetic testing and genetic screening and there being discrimination as a result of it. For instance, in the early 90s, we published a survey where we found people who had run into problems because somebody had found out the results of their genetic testing. And we published the first article that was ever published on on that genetic discrimination on the basis of genetic testing. I mean, there had been some examples before that that people knew about, but there was no more expanded version of it. Partly from my involvement in that, I, I was uh, put on the Committee on Ethical, Legal, and Social Issues of the Human Genome Project. So when the Human Genome Project started, uh, a certain amount of money was put into supporting um, issues related to the new information that would come out of, of um, the Genome Project. Uh, and discrimination was one of the, the major ones, and it ultimately led uh, I, I won't say that it was our our paper that did it, but it ultimately led to uh, recommendations and interactions uh, with congressional leaders to uh, develop some law that would uh, prevent discrimination, and which exists today, well before the Genome Project. We were looking at that, and people had pointed out in issues like um, sickle cell trade and sickle cell anemia. People were losing jobs and being discriminated against. So we were aware of those back, I think, 1974 is one article I think of we published in Psychology Today where we pointed out these issues. One thing that really got me in trouble at 
the medical school had to do with concerns about uh, arguments from certain scientists that uh, males with an extra Y chromosome were doomed to lives of criminality. This was from studies in the 1960s, but carried on for about 30 or 40 years as a, as a truth and in textbooks and all sorts of things. Even though within the scientific community, uh, there were articles that said, well, this is not right, but nothing was ever done about it other than, and it just maintained, it was maintained as a truth. Kids were educated about it. Um, mm. Movies were made about XYY males who were criminals, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and now it's it's clear that that was just all wrong. So I was told by someone at Children's Hospital that there was a project going on that he was concerned about, and he knew that I was interested in this XYY thing because we'd published stuff on that. A faculty member at Children's Hospital who was screening newborn baby boys at the Boston Lying-In Hospital, and this person was doing research and trying to understand whether the children might were going to turn into criminals or turn into aggressive people, etc. The informed consent form that he gave didn't even mention what, what they were screening for. They said it was like a screening test for um, phenylketonuria. Phenylketonuria is something that has been screened for many, many decades, and the reason was that you could alter the diet of people with, who were born with the genes that resulted in that disease, and so they, there was screening done all over the place for phenylketonuria. But this informed consent form, this is just a pinprick, and we'll let you know what the information is. We got together, were very concerned about it, um, uh, and complained to a committee here, which was then a, then a new committee was set up by the dean to look into it. There was some real problems. The person who chaired the committee was determined, I knew, found out from people on the committee, not to, not to cause any problems for this study. Um, eventually, the Children's Defense Committee and the, uh, because we got it, there was publicity for it, the Children's Defense Committee and the um, state's attorney general came to Children's Hospital to see what was going on, and so they backed off from, the guy continued to study them, which was okay, because it was done. I mean, it, it involved them, and, but uh, he didn't do any more screening after that, and it stopped at other places, mm. uh, too. And I don't know whether the latter was because of what we had done, but the extent to which that became a, a truism, though, for was unbelievable to me. So that that's when I bring up where things can go wrong, and, and they can last for a very long time. I do have serious problems with identical twin studies. I think there's really serious deficits in them, and it's caused a lot of problems because it, it comes out with a what's called a heritability for a particular trait, uh, and the heritability does not tell you anything about the strength. It misleads people, but it's and it's misrepresented by people. But worse, I think, a lot of geneticists who are doing screening for new uh, genes responsible for various things have relied on the, the heritability studies to go looking because they interpret them to mean that there are very strong genetic contributions to one or another condition. There's a issue 
that's discussed widely called missing heritability, that researchers have used these very powerful techniques to try to find uh, a set of genes that might be responsible for, for a particular condition. Um, and they expected to find much more uh, uh, genes that would have strong effects uh, because of the the twin study numbers that have really have no relationship to it. A lot of genes for conditions have been found, but in many of them, like when they look for genes for intelligence or other um, behavioral traits, uh, they find 2%, 5%, 7%. They can explain, quote, the percent of heritability as being missing because twin studies said it was a very should be a very you should get genes with very strong effects. I'm now collaborating with the responsible conduct of research people mm -hmm. here for them to have some segments of it that deal with these issues, which actually is required by the uh, the National Institutes of Health um, that there be. They don't use the word social justice, but um, I forget exactly how they put it, but that's what they want. I was invited to give a talk at the Office of Research Integrity, which, which uh, controls the responsible conduct of research projects. And um, they invited me to describe my course as something that people can think about. So the people who were at the conference were people who were teaching responsible RCR courses at different places. Something related to this issue I talked about of, of popu population genetics and the way people can be sorted into different groups and the way some people have misrepresented it to say this establishes the existence of the standard race, racial groups. Hmm. I mean, the, the, if you go look at Stormfront or some of these other uh, white supremacist groups, hmm. it's all genetics. I mean, not not old-fashioned old genetics. They're reading or getting somehow all the stuff that's coming out of genetics and, and distorting distorting it. So one of the good things that I'll say, although it could go further, is that um, when Nicholas Wade's book came out, which argued for the genetic inferiority of, of blacks and other, and it just went very, very far and talked about Germans being genetically aggressive and Chinese are genetically moderate or something. Um, 160 people who are basically the leading research people in the population genetics research that's being misused um, sent a, a letter to the New York Times book review, which reviewed the book, um, saying this our work is being totally misrepresented. And that That's... You might think that's not surprising, but it's unusual. You don't usually see scientists getting involved in, quote, mm -hmm. politics. I mean, that's what I was told scientists shouldn't do. I think they should get involved in social justice issues. The other component of at least what I consider social justice includes the kinds of things that are being rejected that are good science, such as evolutionary theory, and global warming, whatever, climate change, et cetera. Uh, so I teach those things too. And I, when I 
teach those, I talk about other scientists who've spoken up. Because a lot of scientists, not a lot maybe, but a number of scientists have gone to court trials on evolution, on the, the teaching of evolution. I think people should be trying as it at all possible to do to be objective when they're doing science, no matter what. And they shouldn't let shouldn't be letting their their politics affect their evaluation. And I'm sure there are problems on both if you want to have two sides on both sides of, of dealing with it. I mean it's always been a problem in science. What was interesting to me is early on when there were the discussions about evolutionary theory, scientists would come in and say it's fact, it's fact, mm-hmm. that, and that's losing your objectivity. And I, what impresses me, and, and I did in my class, was to show a film of, which was a recreation of the trial in um, Dover, Pennsylvania. There was a group that had been successful in, in pushing into the curriculum anti-evolutionary theory one of the reasons I liked showing it to students was that the scientists who were defending evolution were not going in there anymore and saying, it's fact, it's fact. Uh, they're saying, it's the best theory we have, and that's the way science works. You get enough information so that there's agreement, blah, 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 blah. It may not work. They, they, the opponents say, well, oh, it's just a theory. But this goes back to teach, teaching teaching science and teaching what science really is. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Beckwith. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. It was fun for me. (laughs) Next time on Think Research. In a lot of these countries, a substantial fraction of the population will be infected with TB in some latent form. And they'll also be exposed to TB infection on a regular basis. Most of those people, if healthy, if they don't have HIV, most of those people will not develop active TB. But with the increasing fraction of the population being immunosuppressed, we'd see a lot more of those TB infections rapidly developing into active TB disease. And so you have these dual epidemics, TB and HIV, with the consequence that approximately a quarter of all HIV deaths are coming from a subsequent episode of TB disease. Dr. Nick Menzies explains the difficulty and importance of modeling infectious diseases for the best possible outcomes. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.